Welcome to the Measure Success Podcast, where we feature top leaders on how they measure success in their business and life. Now, let's learn from their experiences. Carl J. Cox here, and I'm the host of the Measure Success Podcast, where I talk with top leaders about effective strategies that inspire success. This episode is brought to you by 40 Strategy. 40 Strategy is built to make strategy work for small to medium-sized companies and organizations by designing world-class strategic plans, but also just as importantly, help keeping them accountable to actually get it done. Go to 40strategy.com to learn more. We like to do shout outs from time to time. And in this case, we like to thank Varun Puri, who is the CEO of Udly. That is actually what is recording this call today. We use it regularly on all of our calls. We love it as an AI messaging tool. So I don't have to spend the extra time writing and taking notes. So Udly does that for me on a regular basis. So we encourage you to use that product. And with that, he recommended to our guest, Jacob Coker. He is the managing director at the AI2 Incubator. It is a one-of-a-kind place to build an AI-first company at the Paul Allen Institute for AI, which is, of course, the former Microsoft co-founder. He's an early-stage investor focused on the intersection of AI and practical commercial use cases. Over the last 15 years, Jacob has helped to create numerous startups as a co-founder, senior executive professor and investor, and Jacob is one of the few people that have gone through straight through the podcast because he is one of the busiest humans that I've run into and is working on so many different things on a regular basis. Jacob, welcome to the Measure Success Podcast. Hey, Carl, thanks for the opportunity to share our story. I really appreciate that. So why don't you begin with that? Tell us a little bit more how this incubator was started and how you got involved with it. Well, let me start with our value proposition. If you are thinking about starting a company, and if that company in some way, shape, or form is using AI, it's hard to imagine a better place in the world where you can build a company, a better partner to help you build that company than the AI2 incubator. We ourselves on the core team here have you know, many dozens of years of experience of not only building companies, but building AI first companies, companies with a high degree of applied AI at the very core of the product. It's one thing to read a research paper on archive or, or elsewhere. It's another thing to integrate those technologies into a product that's used by, you know, thousands or tens of thousands of people. So, you know, in addition to the core team here, we also have a tremendous community of now over 75 founders who have built AI first companies. And those founders lean on each other. They give support to each other. They help each other out. It's a very active, very engaged community. And then we have a strategic relationship with the Paul Allen Institute for AI, which is where the incubator was was born. And that organization gets about $100 million a year in annual funding from the Paul Allen Vulcan estate. And there are over 200 researchers, engineers, professors, AI PhDs, and support staff at that institution. So this really is a one-of-a-kind place to build an AI-first company. It's not the only place in the world where you can get entrepreneurship support. There's plenty of incubators and accelerators and venture studios out in the world where you can do that. But if you are building something that has AI in it in any way, shape, or form, it's hard to imagine a better partner than the place that we've built here. Obviously, I'm biased, but we've many of us have been entrepreneurs. We've gone through 
you know, the fire ourselves multiple times trying to bring something to life. Uh, and we've really tried to build this place in the image of the partner that we would have wanted when we were entrepreneurs ourselves. And I feel really proud about the, the organization that has come together around that ideal. How many startups are you working at any one time in the incubator? Yeah, so for contrast, you might have heard of Y Combinator or Techstars. These are some of the most well-known accelerators out in the world. An accelerator like Y Combinator might have 600 companies over the arc of a year that they'll work with, maybe two different cohorts or classes throughout the year. Um, our model is a bit different as opposed to what, what you might consider more of a spray and pray model. We are much more of a, a targeted, high conviction place. We certainly interview many hundreds of entrepreneurs and potential founders each year amongst the core partners here. And we certainly have an exciting group of folks that apply each year. But there are a subset of those that are a really good fit for us, that we are a really good fit for them. And that tends to be somewhere in the 15 to 25 range per year. 15 to 25 unique individual founders will join us over the arc of a year. We don't have cohorts. And then we'll spend anywhere from three months to 18 months helping those people you know, build the best team possible, build the best product possible, and then raise millions of dollars of seed funding. And so that that range in time depends a lot on where they are in their initial idea. We certainly work with individuals who are just at the cusp of thinking about what they might do if they were to build a company. And we also work with com complete teams who have not yet really raised a seed round but know who they are, know who their business partners are, and have a sense of what their product is going to be. Those certainly can get through our partnership faster. But at the end of the day, it's not an accelerator. It's not a venture studio. We are a co-founder. That's what we do. We, we sign up uh, to build these companies alongside of these individuals, and uh, we pour our heart and souls and blood, sweat, and tears into, into making those businesses happen. And that ends up being somewhere in the you know, five to uh, six companies per year out of maybe nine or 10 projects. Some projects spill into the next year because sometimes it takes longer. And certainly out of that cohort of entrepreneurs, you know, some will team up together. And, and that's how we end up with a subset of, of, of companies from those 15 to 25 entrepreneurs. How do you help discern that process of we, we, we think and believe this, this group or these, you know, set of founders or concepts or ideas are qualified to be within your incubator? Yeah, I think I suppose I'll 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 take I, I suppose I'll, I take slight objection to the phrase weed out. I, I think everybody has a right to take a shot at entrepreneurship and to to go make their dent in the universe. In a lot of ways, it's not necessarily us to be the arbiter of what is or is not good in, in a lot of ways. We certainly filter for the types of talent that we know we can help be successful. So entrepreneurial AI researchers, software engineering leaders who are ready to start their own thing, scientists, people that might come from the life or biophysical health or climate worlds, 
or product leaders, and then of course, small teams, all of which can approach entrepreneurship with their lens of, of experience and, and really go for it. And, and we really love entrepreneurs in general. We're very proud of anybody who has the courage to go, go build and go try. Where the filtering mechanisms come is not necessarily from us, but from the feedback that people hear from customers in the wild. You know, it's not necessarily building a company, it's launching an experiment and then letting that experiment have some life to it until you get data that informs you one way or another. And then you adopt the experiment and, and try a different set of experiments until you find something that has data that are pointing you in the right direction. So the 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 phrase weed out, I suppose, implies that you know we're doing a bunch of decision making, and we are, don't get me wrong, for anybody who's worked in venture, there's certainly a lot of decisions here, but it is rooted in the meritocracy of customer feedback and you know the opportunity for somebody to, to take their shot at their product and put it out in the wild. And it's it's that kind of collaborative analysis of those results that entrepreneurs themselves will see the data right in front of them. And they don't want to spend three, four, five years working on something that is ultimately not going to be successful. It's a huge waste of their own time and life and resources. And so it tends to be pretty obvious feedback for the, the vast majority of entrepreneurs that come through here, whether or not something's working or not, because they can feel it from customer feedback just as much as we can. What is the, one of the key things you have to help coach them on to help get to their next level, if you may, or obstacle they have to overcome? I think in general, the field of AI has a tremendous amount of hype to it. Obviously, there's a lot of opportunity and, and real impact that's possible with that. But there's also a lot of fluff. And I think that as innovators, we can often forget that people don't buy AI. They, they want solutions to problems that they're facing. Nobody has ever sent said, nobody's ever said, hey, honey, you know, on your way home, can you grab some bananas, some milk and some AI from the store? Nobody says that, right? They, they want their problems solved. And I think innovators who have spent years learning specialty skills, like the ones needed to be successful as an AI innovator, can often see their hammer as the perfect solution to everything, when in reality, it's the perfect solution to a very specific set of nails. And you can't just swing the hammer at everything. You, you need to go find the right nails to hit with that hammer. And so a lot of our work is fundamental, basic first principles entrepreneurship work of talking to customers, evaluating their problems, making sure that it's not polite interests, but legitimate problems that people are legitimately willing to solve or, or to pay to have solved. And, and that is hard work. It's hard for anybody to take an idea, take themselves and, and their early prototypes and put yourself out to be judged dozens or even hundreds of times through the journey of customer discovery. It's a terrifying thing that is, is hard for anybody. And that's the hard work of the incubator. It's the day in, day out work to make sure these ideas are, are not hallucinations. Explain what that basic is. What is AI? And then secondly, go through and just talk about from a high level, once again, what I call this investments, significant investments that's bringing the attention to the broader audience of what AI is and what has been and where it's going. 
AI is just software. Fundamentally, it is just software. But the difference is, is that it's software that learns and gets smarter with different inputs and can make better decisions over time as it learns and makes better decisions. Fundamentally, that's it. It's not rocket science per se, although there's a tremendous amount of work that goes into it. It really is fundamentally just software. That's it. What you're hearing about in the news these days is around a new field of AI called generative AI. And that is where AI has historically been one that can make decisions, can, can take inputs and spit out outputs based on a set of criteria or weights or, or whatever it is that you put into the algorithm or model that you're building. The new field of generative AI uh, can use a number of these incredible innovations to create new things. So create text, create imagery, create sound, create voice tracks, right? One of our companies, for example, are, is called Wellsaid Labs. You can check them out at wellsaidlabs.com. And what they do is they allow you to type some text and then select a type of voice. They have 70 or so voices on their platform growing every day and soon in other languages. And then you can effectively generate a voice track that sounds like a podcast or sounds like a radio commercial or TV commercial. And you can say, I want, you know, female or male or, you know, Australian accent or English, British accent, or, you know, the happy voice, the narration voice, the podcast sounding voice, the whatever it is. And you can then download an incredibly high quality MP3 file nearly instantaneously after it's been rendered and use it for whatever content you're trying to do. There are all kinds of startups out there that are using algorithms and, and, and models to generate text, generate blog posts, generate a variety of different things. So that's the field of generative AI. The hype that you're hearing about, the excitement that you're hearing about is around a particular company called OpenAI. They have built a number of products that are allowing folks who don't necessarily have three PhDs in AI to very quickly and easily spin up capabilities using these tools that have been built and that are owned by OpenAI to generate text, generate imagery, and generate these things. And they've done it in a way that allows startups to integrate that into their products. So there's a wave of startups that are coming out that generate text or, or all kinds of other things that enable you to do new things, supersized, if you will, by an, a product and that is being powered by the tools that are, are owned and, and created by a company called OpenAI. And they have a, a, a very important, very big partnership with Microsoft that, that has enabled them to create these tools in the first place. From the everyday person perspective, what are they gonna see differently in their in their lives that AI will be able to do then that they can't do today? You know, I, I, I don't know if I can predict 10 years from now, but what I can tell you is a historical trend that I think is really interesting and how it relates to where we're headed. So if you look back 20 years ago or, or so, startups in the early day, early 2000s, for example, used to pitch investors on the quality of their 
hosting infrastructure and their uptime. You know, our website's 99.99% uptime or you know, we, we've got an incredible hosting infrastructure and you used to have to raise money to buy servers and have an IT team to maintain those servers. And, and your ability to host your website was a key differentiator for you as a company. It was a competitive advantage to have your website actually working more than, you know, 99% of the time. AWS came along and changed the entire paradigm in that two people in a proverbial garage could suddenly spin up a new website or a new product and have the same hosting infrastructure that Netflix has instantaneously. You no longer needed to raise millions of dollars for your own hosting infrastructure. You no longer needed an IT team to keep your website up. You could just use AWS. And that enabled a whole new class of innovation of people that can innovate much more cheaply, much more quickly. And it just created a whole new approach to innovation, which was really, really powerful. If you apply that to today, one of the notions is that the company with the most data wins. And that is something that is often spoken about in the world of AI, because you need data to be able to train algorithms, to create these models. And companies like Google and and Microsoft and any big, insert any big company brand name, that has access to a lot of data, proprietary data, was seen as an entrenched winner who had a competitive advantage because they had so much data. The new innovations that are coming out, all of this stuff is what are using large language models or pre-trained models. And for, for your listeners to understand what that means, these are models that have been trained on absolutely enormous amounts of data, you know, arguably big chunks of the entire internet. They've been pre-trained on this. The reason that OpenAI needed to partner with Microsoft in the early days is because Microsoft has a, a just enormous compute infrastructure in, in that they own Azure and are constantly, you know, bringing on new customers and growing that slice of the business. And so OpenAI needed thousands and thousands of of machines to be able to train these algorithms on because the data that they are trained on are just absolutely astronomical amounts of data to create these billions and billions and soon to be trillions of parameters of data. What that did, however, is that it created algorithms and and tools that exist inside of, of OpenAI that have effectively been trained on almost the entire internet in a lot of cases. And suddenly that can be used by the proverbial two people in a garage, right? So in a number of these use cases, a number of these scenarios, no longer is the winner the company that has the most data because they are now in a scenario where they have to compete or can or will soon compete with two, two people in the proverbial garage. It is a, a step change in innovation in, in a space that has been dominated by people that control the most data. That is the big thing that is blowing everything up right now, that idea, that concept. And the fact that it's so easy to use and so accessible, 
you know, every single reporter has written a blog post on GPT and 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 ChatGPT in particular recently because you can ask it questions, you can generate responses or generate content in ways that are, are very powerful. That is new. And so how is that going to affect things over the next 10 years? You know, the analog of AWS is a really interesting one. It totally changed the game in a lot of ways, in, in way, you know, dozens of ways that people didn't even, you know, fathom. And I, I think that's what's so exciting about this moment in history is that we are now at a similar moment uh, where you don't need all that data. You can just spin up a little startup in a garage on a Friday, and you might have ten thousand users on a Monday using a product that's doing some really cool things that weren't possible even just six months ago. Let's let's talk about the CEO has a $25 million business. How are they going to be able to apply this technology? And what do they need to start thinking about today? Oh, I want to try and give you a great answer. But the truth is, is that it's so dependent on each and every business, Carl. You know, it's 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 really tricky. Are these services businesses? Are they, you know, what type of industry are they in? I think with every new invention or innovation in history, they these tools have been introduced and over a period of time, they create some friction and frustration. And there are some companies that win and some other companies that struggle. But by and large, society emerges more productive, more efficient, more effective in what they're doing. The washing machine, nobody actually wanted to sit there and grind clothes against a, a rough board, right? The telephone switching tool, you know, the idea of literally plugging one cable from one house to another was how calls were connected at one point in, in history. And, and so the, just as innovation comes out, it certainly is going to disrupt certain industries more so than others. And this is no different. But fundamentally, when we think about innovation, we think about it in the context of an and not an or. Let me explain what I mean by that. The news media has a business model. Their business model is eyeballs, and they want a lot of people to read their stories because they sell ads of the ad space next to those stories. And AI algorithm makes something 10% more efficient is not nearly as exciting as AI killer robot is going to steal your job, right? Let's be honest, right? And so I think when you look at a lot of the hype that is coming out around AI and, and that has historically been there in, in, in the, the messaging of, you know, where AI is and what it's going to do, it tends to be sensationalist because that is the business model of the news media. In reality, though, we don't think that it's necessarily going to replace jobs or replace companies or so much as augment them, make them better. You know, one plus one is five types scenarios where it is the and, the human and the AI, not the human or the AI, right? Let's take radiology, for example. There's been a lot of talk about how 
computer vision a few years ago was going to replace radiologists and people shouldn't even bother going to medical school for radiology because that's an industry that's going to go down the tubes. And it's true. It started with people outsourcing you know, analysis of, of x-rays or mammograms to doctors in India and then beaming it back, right? This is not an AI thing. This is a, a market-based efficiency thing. But an AI is never going to be able to sit somebody down and sit their family down and say, I'm sorry to say you have breast cancer. Let's figure out a plan. Right? It's never That's never going to happen. And this is where there are very many examples in the process of even just going through and, and looking at you know hundreds of radiology imagery over the course of a day. A lot of that stuff, a radiologist shouldn't be looking at. We should be able to filter out the obvious cases where there isn't a problem and then give them more time to look at the images where we're not sure if there's a problem or where they should pay a little extra attention to this image where you can reduce the workload spread being spread evenly amongst 400 images to one where they're spending a lot more time on the 40 images that really matter and so in general we just don't believe that the or is is first of all really necessarily going to happen in a lot of industries you know we tend to believe that the and is the way that innovation is going to ultimately create the most value where you have the human and the ai and so for all of the little companies that are out there that are worried as you say about how these new technologies might uh, disrupt their businesses it, it depends a lot on the industry that they're in if you are a, a content creator you know, a shop with 25 writers, you know, you might have some issues in the next couple of, of months or more. But in most cases, a lot of these innovations are providing ways for humans just to be way better at what they do and just do more in the same way that we don't handwrite emails anymore. We handwrite letters anymore. We type them up and shoot them through an email as opposed to putting them on the Pony Express and sending them, you know, six weeks across the United States, right? The computer and emails and other analog has made us so much more effective at what we do. That is the angle that we look through or lens that we look through when we think about innovation. And it tends to be more of the reality of where things are going to land in a lot of these businesses than what the news media would have you believe. So you're saying we're a little bit further away from T2 than <laughs> it's it's a long way from T2, a long way to go. So I, I happened to be working in a movie theater when I was a projectionist when that movie was coming on. And so I saw that over and over again, the the beginning of the intro, you know, if you may, from from the big picture perspective, how are you measuring success, what you do, or perhaps at a with the individual companies that are coming through, how do you know you're being successful? I'd say 80% of it is standard venture capital metrics. You know, did the company raise additional capital? You know, was it at a meaningful valuation? Do they, and, and inherent in that is, is that company going to have the resources to scale to the next level and achieve their goals as a business? You know, underneath that, you could look at job creation. We've been very lucky that our teams have now created over 600 jobs in just the last few years and, and growing and they've raised 150 million. They're closing in on, you know, close to a billion dollars of valuation over the next six months or so. And we're, we're very excited about coming up on that milestone at some point. And, and, but beyond 
standard venture capital metrics, which are important, is impact. That's the that's the other twenty percent. So for us, it's making sure we're doing that in industries that the world actually needs innovation in, and we're not just building doohickeys. We have about thirty or so percent of our companies are building innovation in the healthcare space, you know, all kinds of, of ways that AI is being applied to life science and, and, you know, general healthcare. We also are you know, constantly looking at ways that we can make the world safer. You know, we've got companies that are in the robotic space that are trying to make it easier to build robots, make them safer on future of work. So how do we, you know, give people the ability to supersize themselves and just accomplish more uh, and, and go through all that. So, you know, impact to us is about making sure that we're not just building doohickeys, we're building things that the world actually needs. But fundamentally, we are a group of innovators that that are held to account by, you know, standard VC metrics. Perfect. How do you make sure you're coming to the office each day and bringing your absolute best? Coffee. (laughs) A lot of coffee. You know, look, I think first and foremost, I am one person. I'm one spoke in a wheel of really, really incredible human beings. And we work with absolutely top of the field AI folks and innovators, entrepreneurs who've built really, really big and important companies that are back and partnering with us on the next round. You know, it's it's not hard to walk into a place like this and get inspired by the people around you to want to do your best and, and to achieve your best. And I think you know, we have a 40,000 square foot facility here between the main research facility across the street and our, our incubator co-working space here that's private for our teams. And the energy in, in, in the facility here, and by the way, you don't need to be in Seattle to work with us. We work with folks from all over the world. Zoom, as we all learned, is actually quite powerful through the pandemic. But the energy is palpable when you walk in. It inspires you. It makes you come alive. And you look at these entrepreneurs who are so inspired to go solve problems in a variety of industries. And these are incredible human beings to begin with, like Varun Puri, who, who was on your show earlier, and, and the you know 69 other folks that are here. You can't be around those folks and not want to bring your best. You just, you're expected to in the same way that I would imagine it's like to be on a Super Bowl team, right? You, you just, everybody expects the best out of each other. So in a lot of ways, we're not searching for inspiration. We, we're, we're presented with inspiration, you know, many times a day, just standing in a, having coffee in the kitchen next to these incredible people. On a personal level, coffee, <laughs> just a lot of coffee. You know, in addition to the work that I do here, I'm very fortunate to have an incredible family and and, you know, my, my other startup who just turned seven, his name's Levi and, and my co-founder, my wife you know, to, to, to joke, but it, you know, it's, it's not easy to bring your best every single day. And, and the work that we do is it, it requires a high degree of intellectual focus in every single meeting. It's not just, you know, one 30 minute session and, you know, it's often, you know, 10, 12, 15, 30 minute sessions a day and jumping around to different industries. In a lot of ways, that 
diversity of ideas and challenges and and focus areas actually uh, i believe makes makes the the rest of us here on the core team stronger because we bring such unique perspectives from so many different industries and so many different problems being solved. It, it is diversity in its purest sense. I mean, we talk a lot about diversity being something that is really important that we all want to see more of in all the various teams that we work on. And, and that's another perfect example of just having diversity of ideas and exposure to different problems. Uh, and, and that makes us better too. So I I wish I could say that I, you know I run five miles every day and 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 all those things, but the simple answer is that I drink a heck of a lot of coffee, and I am every hour of every day inspired by the people that I get the the good fortune to sit in the same building as, who just make me want to be better just by being around them, and I'm I'm really lucky to be in this community. That's awesome. I'm curious for yourself, and perhaps you can maybe give two different book examples or something that you think people should follow up with. One is perhaps a book in the AI world that you think that people should read. And then perhaps another book that you think would be inspiring to others that has inspired you. Well, I see a wall of books behind you and I, I don't mean to reject the format of, of a book so forcefully because books obviously are, are a tremendous source of information and knowledge and really important part of what it means to be human is to read a book in the AI world though. I think the publishing cycle and calendar is often at odds with the pace of innovation, right? If you want to write a book, you need to sit down and spend a few months and go back to the editor. And maybe six months later, you send a copy and your manuscript and you get input and everything. And then it goes out to publish. And maybe a year later, if you're lucky, it hits the shelf. You've been lapped four times by the pace of innovation in the AI world. So in, in the spirit of that, there are certainly a few books here and there within the AI world that are worth reading. You can go and Look up on Amazon, AI bestsellers, you'll probably see a list of them. What I can say is that the better place to get knowledge around AI is, there's a, there's a couple of blogs out there that are great. Ben's Bytes comes to mind as a very valuable and effective newsletter-ish blog of the latest and greatest information in highly digestible <laughs> language. You don't necessarily need a PhD to understand these things. If you do have some degree of technical knowledge, reading papers it, particularly ones that have been nominated for best paper award from the latest AI conferences or ones that have a good degree of excitement on archive, that is a great place to stay on top of the latest news. And, and generally speaking, a Google alert with the phrase generative AI or artificial intelligence, and even if you just skim the headlines, just to kind of stay on top of the, that to me tends to be, of course, Twitter as well you know, despite what you might think of current ownership, uh, it's still a place where a lot of AI practitioners and experts and people in the entrepreneurship world spend time hanging out. And so searching for keywords and, and hashtags that are related to AI is certainly a good place to spend time. But I, I think actually Ben's Bytes is one of the better newsletters that I've come across over the years. And it's just exactly what you want when you're trying to stay on top of an industry and who has time to sit down and read 12 books on AI anyways, right? It's, 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 it's hard. So I think books are important. Don't get me wrong, but I think the pace of innovation does not match with the timeline of, of editorial development for books. How can people learn, connect with you, learn more about what y'all are doing? AI2incubator.com. AI, the number two, incubator.com.
we are a pretty open, transparent group. If you are thinking about starting a company in AI, we would love, even if, if you have an idea for an industry that needs a new product because there's some inefficient thing in there and you're compelled to solve it and you have some degree of expertise in that space, reach out to us. We also have you know, an incredible bench of AI talent that doesn't have an idea that's that's hunting for a great, you know, juicy problem to go solve. So it's, you know, any any side of the, the coin is worth reaching out to us. We read every single application that comes through the apply button on our website. Every single one of them we read, I read personally, and we take it very seriously. And we don't take it for granted when smart people give us an opportunity to explore partnering with them. We feel very lucky to have that opportunity. Jacob, it has been a absolute pleasure to have you on the Measure Size Success podcast today. Thank you for your time. Thanks, Carl. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you the very best and measuring your success. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to the Measure Success podcast. We'll see you again next time to learn from the best. Remember to subscribe now to get future episodes.